Well, last night we, uh, we had a great celebration over at Timberline Baptist Church celebrating LifePoint's 10th anniversary. It's been 10 years uh, since we launched this church. Um, I want to say thank you to all of you who have been a part of LifePoint for any part of these 10 years. And thank you for your contributions to um, the growth, the life, the ministry, the vitality uh, of this church. I want to say a special word of thanks to our pastors, uh, Evan and Steve, uh, for their partnership in the ministry, to their wives. Uh, wives uh, pastors' wives are often the unsung heroes, sometimes the walking wounded in every church. And uh, we, uh, we appreciate them so much. I want to say thank you to my own wife for supporting me in, in all these years of ministry. And... Uh, and to our elders, uh, Greg Volkart, Bill Marchant, Freddie Williams, and their wives, uh, thank you for your leadership. I would say to you that this is uh, this group of elders that we have at LifePoint uh, in all my years uh, of, of ministry, this is the, the greatest group of men I've ever worked with. And I say that uh, without, you know, with, with full candor and full honesty, the most uh, godly group of men who have, a heart, have hearts for God, hearts for all of you, uh, uh, and uh, you should honor them, thank them for their leadership. Well, this morning, yes. This morning, we are, uh, it's kind of a standalone message. It's a word of challenge uh, to us on, on this 10th anniversary um, to become a tenacious church. I want to let you know next week, uh, we have a special guest, Jim Black. Uh, Jim is actually a native of Lacey. He accepted Christ where we were last night at Timberline Baptist Church and when he was in high school. And um, also his wife, Lisa, who will be with him. Jim and Lisa were with us about a year ago. Jim is the uh, internet, uh, Director of International Missions for Converge Worldwide, which is uh, the network that we are a part of. And he directs our mission in sub-Saharan Africa, and, uh, which includes Togo, which is uh, a country that, uh, and, a, and a, a mission that our children here at LifePoint support, that we as um, elders have been considering for adoption as a mission f- uh, for, for our church at large. So Jim's going to be here, and he's going to be speaking, and you, you don't want to miss that. It's going to be a great morning together. He's also going to pop back into the children's area. Uh, early part of both those services to be with them and to encourage them. But that's going to be awesome. And then the, the week following, uh, I'm going to begin a, a new series through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Romans. And uh, so we're going to be in Romans from two weeks from today right up to uh, the end of November. We'll take a break for Christmas. We'll be back into Romans up to Easter or somewhere thereabout. We're going to do an Easter series. Then we'll be back into Romans. We'll finish Romans sometime. But we're, we're, going to, we're just going to walk through Romans together. And a challenging book, one of the greatest books in the, all of the Bible. And so I hope that you will plan to be a part uh, of that with us. Do you know when I was a freshman at Seattle Pacific College, um, Seattle Pacific University now, my first three years there were Seattle Pacific College and Marcy and I graduated, the first graduating class from Seattle Pacific University. But when I was a freshman there, uh, through a series of unexpected events, really kind of surprising events, I ended up trying out for and to my astonishment making the varsity soccer team 
uh, as a defender. And in the interest of full disclosure, I um, I really shouldn't have belonged on that team uh, because I was a real latecomer to the game. I've, I'd never really played soccer before except in high school PE class, right? Um, but I ended up in the, the dormitory floor where most of the varsity soccer team played. And and we were always there. I was. I was kind of got just got drawn in, right? And so we're always out kicking balls. And they said, "You're not bad at this. Maybe you ought to try this." And uh, <laughs> um, each of my teammates, in contrast to me, had been playing the game all their lives in places like Uganda, and Argentina, and Mexico, and various parts of Europe, as well as here in the United States. And and I actually spent a lot of time sitting on the bench, um, but I made the team. And I was proud to even have been invited to be a part of that team. And I was proud of our team. That season and the following one, uh, during which the two years I tanked my grade point average and had to spend the next two years digging myself out. But uh, that season and the following, uh, we made it all the way to the NCAA Division II championship game. Uh, and each season losing that championship game by just one goal. But one of the random memories I have, uh, and I've just never forgotten this. It's funny how certain things just stick out, but I've I've never forgotten uh, a Seattle sports writer describing our team's style of play as tenacious. And, uh, And maybe he chose that word, probably chose that word because of our attitude, our confidence, uh, that even when we were trailing an opponent in a match, uh, we believed that the match wasn't over until it was over, that uh, until the end of the game, we had the opportunity to win. And win, we did a lot. Um, we, got, we just won so much, we're tired of winning. What is tenacity? What is tenacity? If you look up the word tenacious in your dictionary, you're going to find definitions like these. Uh, First of all, tending to keep a firm hold of something. Clinging or adhering closely. Not readily relinquishing a position, a principle, or a course of action. Determined, persisting in existence. Not easily dispelled. If you check a thesaurus, you'll find synonyms like patient, persistent, persevering, determined, dogged, untiring, unwavering, unswerving, unshakable, scrappy, stubborn, steadfast. And you know, the way I read the Bible, I think that these synonyms describe the church that Jesus had in mind when he said that the gates of hell would never prevail against the church. I think these synonyms describe the church that Jesus had in mind for us to be here at LifePoint because he knew about us, he had a plan for us before the foundations of the earth. He knew we would be here today. Well, what does a tenacious church look like? For the church, tenacity is rooted in a variety of things. Among them are confidence 
in the promise of God that he's not done with us yet. That he has a plan and a purpose for having planted us in the soil in which we are planted. Until that day when the Lord Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and when the church, living and dead, will rise to meet the Lord in the air, and, and from that point on, we will forever be with the Lord. In the meantime, we are called to a missional lifestyle that is characterized by tenacity. Never giving up. You know, it's sad for me to realize that uh, in our time, many many so-called Christ followers, professing Christ followers, are giving up on the church. And, and they're doing so with a certain attitude that I'm kind of above all of that. And to those people, I ask one simple question. How can you claim to be a Christ follower and at the same time give up on the church for whom Christ died, which he is sanctifying and purifying for himself, the church which he will one day come to take home as his bride. You see, Jesus clearly hasn't given up on the church. And the reality is that the moment he did, if he did, which he won't, But if he did, he would have every legitimate reason to do. The immediate result would be that you and I would be condemned to an eternity separated from him. If you are genuinely following Christ in your life, being part of the church, loving the church, leading the church, serving the church, advancing the mission of the church will be of the highest priority to you because the church is of the highest priority to him. Jesus said, where I am, there my servant will also be. And where Jesus is, is in a posture of focus on the church. This morning I'd like to talk about seven adjustments in attitude that are necessary if LifePoint is going to be that tenacious church. Each of them is found in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, which we know as Philippians. And let me say before I dive into this that I know that there's there are a lot more principles in the book of Philippians than I have time to deal with in this hour, and you'll thank me for that. But here are seven attitude adjustments that I can see very clearly that have to do with becoming a tenacious church. And the first attitude adjustment is from consumers to investors. From consumers to investors. Uh, if you've been around here long enough, you know one of my favorite couple of verses uh, in scripture are Philippians 1, 3 to 5, where Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Let me, let me begin by just drawing that contrast. 
a consumeristic Christian keeps asking the question of the church, what's in it for me? What's in it for my family? What are we going to get when we participate in the church? An invested Christian, by contrast, keeps asking, how can we partner together to advance the gospel in our families, in our communities, and in our world? A tenacious church is characterized by partnership, which implies shared investment of time, of gifts, of talents, of financial and material resources, other resources, and because of that shared investment, a tenacious church will also engage in shared risk, at least some measure of suffering, but also shared success and shared joy. Every invested partner will affirm that God called them to the church for a reason, and that that reason is not about serving themselves, but serving God and others. And so they take ownership of the call, and they embrace one another, and they embrace the risk, and they experience the joy. As I think about LifePoint, and I think back over those 10 years, I think about our original launch team who who were pioneers, I called them sodbusters at the time because, because we had so little. But we had each other, we had a vision, we had a sense of calling to participate with God and seeing something that didn't exist come into existence. And, and others like them, all of you have joined us since then. People who think it's worthwhile to set aside time on the weekend to honor the Lord People who every week prepare a Sunday school lesson rooted in God's word for children and for youth and for adults to nourish their spiritual lives. People who open their homes during the week to provide a hospitable environment for a group of teens or adults to connect relationally, to grow spiritually. People who rise early like Vince Pfaff and his team to to drive a trailer to Timberline High School even in the middle of the winter, who show up to set up people who are still here in an hour or more after the crowd has left each Sunday to take everything down and put it back in the box. People who prepare and serve food that provides a delicious welcome to our valued guests. People who tithe 10% or more of their income and then give over and above that to Vision Next as well as to special needs that arise in the church family. By the way, if you're not familiar with Vision Next, make sure you check the table at the back this morning because we would love to have you participate with us in that. By their investment, these people declare that God isn't done with them, with each other, or with the church. And so they serve faithfully, they serve obediently, they serve sacrificially and joyfully until the buzzer sounds and Jesus comes. The second adjustment in attitude is from inward to outward. Philippians 1, 12 through 18, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. See, I love what what Paul says here in, in verses 12 through 14 at the beginning of this passage. He begins with what has happened to him. I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Stuff happens in life, right? I mean... Some, some good, sometimes a lot of bad. We can't control what happens, most of what happens around us or to us. Stuff happens. Shared with you a few weeks ago, my friend Stuart Briscoe often says, happiness depends on happenings. So if our happenings happen not to happen in the manner in which we happen to hope our happenings will happen, well then we might happen to be unhappy. See, Paul's writing from prison. He's under a kind of house arrest, and and he points to two happy outcomes to what has happened to him. First, the entire imperial guard, the Praetorian guard, the, the rest of the staff in the place where Paul was imprisoned had heard the gospel. They couldn't escape. They didn't have any other choice. He was chained to them. They were chained to him 24-7. And in the wake of what had happened to him, Paul didn't choose unhappiness. He chose to advance the gospel, and it had a profound effect, even in the place of his imprisonment. Second, he says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What? How does that happen? How how does God use an otherwise fear-inducing event like the imprisonment of a prominent leader to embolden the church? I don't know. But it has happened over and over and over again down through the centuries. As far back as as Israel's captivity in Egypt, it was written, the more that they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and spread. In verse 18, Paul acknowledged that there were some who preached the gospel with less than stellar motivations, and yet he rejoiced even in that, that that regardless of their motives, Christ was proclaimed. You might say that Paul had a sustained outward focus. He didn't turn inward and wilt in that moment where it seemed like all was lost, where he might be nearing the end. When it was game over, he didn't fold, he didn't wilt. He saw in every circumstance an opportunity for the gospel and he capitalized on the opportunity. Whatever happens, a church, a tenacious church, will have a sustained outward focus 
because it's concerned, as we've seen in the past few weeks, to fulfill the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself, to fulfill the great compassion, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me, and to fulfill the great commission to make disciples of all the nations. We've been reminded over and over the past few weeks that when we choose an outward focus for the sake of the gospel, we will receive unlimited opportunities to share the gospel with those whom we serve. A third necessary attitude adjustment is from fear to courage. From fear to courage. Chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. A tenacious church responds to opposition and suffering with unity and with courage. Jesus said that suffering would come. He said that in a variety of ways. In the world you will have tribulation. If they hate me, they'll hate you also. If they persecuted me, they'll per persecute you also. Paul now reminds us that suffering and opposition can be expected in the life of discipleship. And that the suffering is even one of the confirming marks that we in fact belong to Jesus. There are other sources of fear in the Christian life besides the fear of overt persecution and suffering. Take for example, for, for instance, the fear that, that if you take a step of obedience, and you've, you've, you've had this fear, I've had this fear, the fear that if you take a step of obedience, like joining a life group or volunteering to serve in a place of ministry or choosing to tithe or answering a call to plant a church or to engage in international mission, that the sacrifice will outweigh the benefit that you'll really end up the loser, that, or that God won't come through and fulfill his promises. But I would suggest to you that in every instance, the question really comes down to where your security lies and who or what it is that you actually worship. You know, I'm so thankful for, for so many of you here at LifePoint who have tenaciously embraced sacrifice and suffering for the sake of the gospel and you haven't shrunk back in fear or selfishness. This is a very generous, giving church. And I'm thinking right now of so many of you who serve in various ministries in the church. I'm also thinking specifically of Stephen Jesselyn Willis and their two boys, Riley and Wyatt, a LifePoint family who took a courageous step a couple of months ago to go to Guatemala for a, for a year, taking their children into a third world country for a year to help people, people there find clean water. 
because they believed that God was calling them to do it. And it's already not easy for them. But they're far from giving up. And we're going to stand tenaciously with them through prayer, as well as through personal and encouragement, personal encouragement, financial support. Fourth attitude is from hopelessness to joy. Chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. A tenacious church is a church that chooses joy. Notice I didn't say it's a church that just experiences joy. A tenacious church is a church that chooses joy. Notice with me that this is not a suggestion on how to live your best life now. It is instead a, a direct command. Rejoice in the Lord always. And because it's a command, it confronts us with a choice that we need to make whether to obey or not to obey, to rejoice or not to rejoice. See, joy is not like happiness. It doesn't depend on what happens. Joy transcends our circumstances because joy is rooted not in circumstances, but in hope. If you lack hope, you will lack joy. If, on the other hand, you possess a firm and a confident hope, then joy will be your constant condition even in the most adverse of circumstances. Some of you in your high school or college psychology classes may have read a book by a man named Viktor Frankl, who was a survivor of a German concentration camp during World War II. He was a Jew. After the war, he became a psychologist, and, and out of his experience in the camps, he wrote his famous volume, Man's Search for Meaning, in which he demonstrated through story after story, anecdote after anecdote, the role that hope played in the capacity of his fellow prisoners to endure the starvation, the, the deprivation, the, the perpetual indignities of life in the camp. And he made one thing stir, uh, crystal clear. That in the camps, when hope was lost, death came very quickly. Frankl said that it is hope, not happiness, that ultimately gives meaning to life. Paul here tells us that the ground of our rejoicing is not our circumstances, neither is it the conduct of others around us. Rejoice in the Lord, he said. Because our hope is in Christ, he is the source of our joy, and so our lives, if they're going to be joyful, must be centered on him. Our hope is in Christ. He's coming again for us. We fix our hopes on that. Someday our prince will come. And that is the ultimate hope of the church. It's the thing that allows us to keep going. It's the thing that has allowed the church in every age, in every part of the world, even in the midst of intense persecution, 
to remain faithful to Christ. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he told them to encourage each other with that confident anticipation that Christ was coming and he would not miss his appointment. Attitude adjustment number five is from perplexity to prayerfulness. In chapter four, six, and seven, he writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A tenacious church is a prayerful church. A tenacious Christian is a prayerful Christian. Life presents us an endless supply of anxiety-inducing inputs, anxiety-inducing experiences, doesn't it? Medical science has linked anxiety with gastrointestinal disorders, chronic respiratory disorders, heart disease, as well as a whole range of chronic, other chronic illnesses. Social science has also identified a full range of anxiety-based psycho-emotional disorders. It just seems like anxiety is a constant for most of us in our modern world. And Christians are not immune. So when Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, we might say, come on, Paul, get real. You know, if there was a candidate for post-traumatic disorder, stress disorder in the early church, it was Paul. He was imprisoned, he was beaten on several occasions, he was near death. In 2 Corinthians 11, he describes some of his experiences. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, for the present generation, that's with rocks. <laughs> Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." See, it's this same Paul who presents prayer as the alternate, the antidote to anxiety. You know, there are, uh, there are a lot of knucklehead Christians that go out and create suffering for themselves. Have you noticed that? <laughs> and then claim to be suffering for Jesus when it's really they're just suffering for their, from their own obnoxiousness. Maybe you know people like that. To be a prayerful quick Christian is not to walk around with a goofy smile on your face pretending that nothing phases you. But here's the reality. That if you are meaningfully invested in the life of discipleship, in the ministry and mission of the church, if you are attempting in your life to stand for Christ, to, to advance the gospel, 
in your relationships, stress will be yours in abundance. Paul promises, don't worry about any of it. Instead, pray about all of it. And when, you'll, when you do, here's what you'll experience. The incomprehensible peace of God. You see, sometimes prayer results in a change in our circumstances. Most often, prayer changes us in the midst of our circumstances. It doesn't eliminate stress. It offers the gift of peace in the midst of stress. So in our worship, in our life groups, in our classrooms, in our daily conversations with each other, and in our homes, and our personal lives, we need to be praying for and with each other. To the degree that we neglect prayer, we forfeit the peace of God that would otherwise guard our hearts and minds. The sixth adjustment is from scarcity to abundance. In the, I'm in the home stretch here. Philippians 4.19 Paul says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. A tenacious church has an abundance mentality. That's not the same as the message of the prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. An abundance mentality implies a settled confidence that, that what Paul said is actually true, that the Holy Spirit was speaking through him, that, that God is the source and the willing supplier of every need of our lives and of our church. Tenacious churches know that they serve a God of abundance who has given them all the resources they need to move forward. Tenacious churches don't spend a lot of time focusing on scarcity. They don't spend a lot of time focusing on limitations, a lack of resources. If there's one thing I've learned over these 10 years of the life of our church, it's that God supplies everything that we need at the time that we need it. And there have been many times, even from the very first months, the very first year, and on through all 10 years, we said, where's that going to come from? How are we, how, how's God going to provide that? Who's, who's going to come through with the money for this or that or the other thing? And the reality is that God has always been right on time with exactly what we needed. Not necessarily what we would have prescribed <laughs> to him, but what he knew we needed. The reality for us here at LifePoint, right now, is that we have enough money. Some of you haven't given it yet, but you have it. And we have enough. We have enough people in our church, although we need to keep on inviting we have more than enough people in our community who don't know Christ to 
keep us busy until Jesus comes, don't you think? We have adequate facilities, even though we look forward to the day when we'll have our own. Right now, we have adequate facilities at a bargain. We have enough of everything we really need to accomplish God's purposes and to carry out the ministry that he has in mind for us right now. Tomorrow is in his hands. Right now, we have enough. So let's move forward. We don't have to wait for something else to happen in order to be and to do what God intends for us in the present. God will supply every need as we obediently pursue his calling right now. He's, he's not poor. He's not poor. Seventh, adjustment in attitude is from impossibility to possibility. Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's included in all things? All things. Possible things. Impossible things. Difficult people and relationships. Disappointing circumstances, challenging obstacles, open doors and closed doors, church buildings and land, every single thing. Everything that God calls you to do, he provides the strength to accomplish. And part of the reason that we shrink back is that we think that it's up to us. That if we step into that place of service, if we step into that place of risk, if we step into that place of investment, that we're not going to have what it takes. And God wants to say to us, you are absolutely right. You don't. You do not. But will you trust me that as I call you into that place, as I direct you into that place as I sometimes have to push you into that place. I'm going to meet you there and my strength will be sufficient for you because my power is going to be perfected in your weakness. Tenacious churches move from excuses to action and they move forward together in the power of God. Tenacious churches also have scrappy, tenacious pastors and scrappy, tenacious elders and scrappy, tenacious lay leaders who never, never, ever give up. Our God is the God of the possible. He is also the God of the impossible. And he is in the habit of making a way where there seems to be no way. At the center of all of that is the fact that you and I were separated from God by our sin. We stood condemned. There was no way you and I could do anything that changed that circumstance, that condition, that 
place of separation, that place of alienation from God. And so God chose to do the most outlandish thing. He sent his son to take on human flesh, just stuff like this. He wrapped himself in our flesh. He lived the life that we couldn't live and he, he died the death that we should have died in our place as our substitute, as our sacrifice. And as he did that, he opened the way to God for us in a way that we never could have even begun to touch. And he said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus died at the cross, he paid for all of your sin and all of mine for all time, past, present, future. Sins you already know about, sins you're contemplating, sins you haven't even thought of yet that you're going to commit one day in your life. He died for all of that. And he loves you. And he invites you to trust him and enter into a tenacious, scrappy life alongside other tenacious, scrappy Christ followers. As we come to the table today, we remember his sacrifice. In the eating of the bread, we remember the body that he gave. In the drinking of the cup, we remember the blood that he shed that was sufficient for all of our sin, all of our failure to meet his righteous standard. If you've trusted in Christ today, you are invited to the table. You don't have to be a part of this church. The only qualifier is that you personally have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If that's true of you, would you come as we sing this closing song? Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you've called us to yourself, that you've called us into relationship with each other. You have made of us a local expression of your church. And Lord, may we live that scrappy, tenacious life until you come, standing together courageously and in unity with each other of one mind and one heart, striving together for one purpose, for the sake of the gospel and the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, to that end, grant us your power and your strength, for we are weak. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.